In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about creating legacy, what you can choose to pass down and what things you don't get a choice in. But real quick, before we get into the episode, I want to give you one last nudge to write your story for Wildfire Magazine. I want you to think about writing for our love and intimacy issue. I know I've been talking about it a lot, but this is your last chance. This is our fourth time we're doing this theme, and it's always powerful. We're exploring all the ways that our cancer has affected our relationships with those closest to us. This is a topic that I know we're thinking about and need to talk about more. So stories of dating, weddings, divorces, intimacy. This is your last chance. Like I said, the submission deadline is coming up fast, February 25th. See more and get tips for writing a winning wildfire essay at wildfirecommunity.org. All right, on to today's episode. I am delighted today to be welcoming back to the burn Anne Camden. Anne is a mother of twin teenage girls married to her college sweetheart, Jeff, living in Raleigh, North Carolina. Anne began her relationship with cancer in 2009 with invasive ductal cancer in the right breast. And in May of 2016, Anne was diagnosed with a second primary cancer, this time lobular, in her left breast, along with a pericardial effusion. And the cancer had also spread to her bones. Now at 51, she's been diagnosed with leptomeningeal disease, the fluid of brain and spine, and many other organs. She's currently undergoing aggressive treatment. For years, she says she lived a life in a state of denial that anything was wrong, but now spends most of her time napping, quilting, and writing the stories of her life. Anne was my guest a year ago, and after today's episode, I urge all of you listening to look back for that episode when Anne was on before. It was called Rooting Stories in Music, Writing Shotgun. It was a piece that Anne wrote for our 2019 Love and Intimacy issue. Hey, Anne, welcome back to The Burn. Thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. Yeah, nice to see you. So today you're here to read a piece that you wrote for our 2022 NBC issue called Legacy Stories. Your essay is called A Three-Prong Legacy Effort. And after you read, we will chat. Those of you listening, as always, stay tuned to the end for a writing prompt. All right, Anne, I'll let you take it away. All right, perfect. A Three-Prong Legacy Effort. Sometimes in the morning, when I'm wrapped in a patchwork quilt I made for one of my daughters, drinking my chai tea latte in the red coffee mug from the Washington Monument that I picked up while I was lobbying on the hill with Metaviver pre-COVID, I wonder if everything I'm doing is working toward leaving a legacy. 
I question if I'm balancing the daily joy as much as I could if I wasn't working so hard to make sure my family wouldn't forget me. For months, if not more than a year, the first three lines of my daily to-do list have read, quilt, blog, advocate. These are the buckets where I pour in my energy, some days more than others, and these tasks will never be completed. To be clear, the list has mundane items too. Swing by the pharmacy to pick up anxiety medications and ammonium, find house painters, send birthday cards to nephew, make hotel reservations for parents' weekend to college, water the garden, and so on. But most days fly by as I try to knock off the list of tasks and hold up my end of the household responsibilities. Yet those first three items remain scrawled across the top of my list day after day, month after month. And I believe they are my legacy. Stitch. I started quilting more than 22 years ago, or as my husband calls it, ripping up perfectly good fabric and stitching it back together again, which kind of parallels how I describe the effect that chemo has on me. But together with a group of primarily young women focused on our careers and fresh marriages, just starting to consider motherhood, I learned the craft of quilting. And over the years, we made quilts for our beds, our walls, our parents, and eventually our children. Every year or so, we quilted together for a new baby, milestone birthdays, and eventually retirements. When my twins were born, the group made us a blue and yellow quilt filled with ducks and bubbles, and a coordinating blue and green quilt filled with sheep, even a black sheep. One year, I made the girls flannel quilts for Christmas with mittens and gingerbread. Eventually, bright pinks and yellows, oranges, blues, and greens came together for twin-sized quilts to cover their matching big girl beds. And since quilts have meant so much to our family over the years, I want my grandbabies to have quilts that I made for them. There are no babies on the immediate horizon, and I'm relieved about that. But I bought the fabric earlier this year. Lush greens of the forest for rose and playful blue hues reminiscent of the ocean for gray. The stacks of fabric sat on my sewing table for months. It took one of my best girlfriends to show up in my kitchen and help me cut the pieces before I could get started. I was paralyzed with fear of screwing them up. As part of my legacy, I want them to be perfect. And even after 22 years of sewing, I'm still a beginner on many levels especially when I have neuropathy and vision problems from chemo treatments. Even after we cut all the pieces, the piles continued to sit on the table mocking me. But during my time with COVID-19 this spring, days prior to the girls' high school graduation, I finished the tops. They aren't perfect, and I question my pattern choice already. But I'm hopeful that on the day they become mother, if I'm not there, that they'll feel my love and presence in each stitch. Right. In 2016, after I was diagnosed metastatic, on a business trip somewhere over the Midwest, I wrote out a list of stories I want the girls to hear from my voice. Anecdotes about crazy uncles and well-intentioned mothers, mistakes made and learned from, the story of the day they were born, and memories of our trip to Disney. When I reach my end, I'll leave behind stacks of journals and oodles of files with half-written stories, along with published blog posts on both my personal blog 
as well as in various publications like Wildfire. I want to make sure it's an authentic and whole collection that represents the person I am or that I was. And some pieces tell my struggles with jealousy. Why did Sam get the promotion at work and not me? Why did Pat have early stage disease at 75 and me at 39? Others meander through memories of dating their father and our years-long struggle to conceive. Struggling to pay off student loans and climb out of credit card debt, balancing my desires for motherhood and my career, deciding their father would be a stay-at-home dad and the barriers we face. I'm afraid if it's all sunshine and leprechauns, they won't appreciate their own hardships and see the path forward. I don't want them to think I was perfect. I certainly wasn't, and I want my words to capture that too. Dozens of moleskin journals are scattered from the cabinet in the attic to my nightstand to the corner of my office. I've started a list of things to make sure they know when I pass, and one of the line items is to store the journals away for at least a year. The writing is raw and unfiltered, and as my husband and daughters begin their grieving process, I suspect that some of the material will only haunt them during that space. So I've asked their cooperation to set these aside until they are ready. Probably a year later, but maybe longer. And I hope that they honor that request. Voice. Finally, I'm modeling how to use my voice to make the world a better place through advocacy work. And I've included the girls in it as well. At 15 years old, Rose joined me on Capitol Hill pre-COVID to talk to legislators about research funding and access to disability battles that are still ongoing. Grace joined me in Raleigh this summer to spend the day advocating for Medicaid expansion in North Carolina and the potential impact it has on cancer patients. They've seen me invest time, energy, and money in conferences and workshops to better understand the disease and how different populations are impacted. They've heard me practice presentations for legislators, researchers, and fellow cancer patients, and they've given feedback along the way. Breast cancer runs thick in our family. Mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, and aunts have all been impacted. And we talk freely at the kitchen table about what it will take to find cures for all the different subtypes of breast cancer. They know that the work I do now, that we do now, likely won't extend my life, but it could impact their lives or that of their children. When I worked in public relations, my mantra was always speak to the people who can make a difference. Don't sit around wallowing in misery if you aren't willing to do something about it, whether it was office politics, government policy, or federal legislation. And I'm hopeful my family will use their voices to continue fighting for a cure and access to health care for all. There is no way to truly prepare a young family for your own death. Over the years we've had together, I think I've instilled my values and shown my love through physical items like quilts personal and meaningful contributions for my writing, and demonstrating the importance of standing up for causes that I believe in through advocacy of all kinds. And that has to be enough. And other than that, I just focus on creating lasting memories with the time that we have together. Mm, That was fantastic, Anne. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So let's take a little break here. And when we come back, Anne and I will chat. Hi, friends. 
There is now a wildfire book in the world. It is a big, beautiful compilation of my favorite essays from Wildfire Magazine, spanning all the way back to our first ever issue in 2016, up to the summer of 2022. This book took years to create and is literally the resource I wish I had had when I was diagnosed with breast cancer. This book is called Igniting the Fire Within, and it's made up of 50 essays that really dig into the experience of having breast cancer in our 20s, 30s, and 40s. Every stage of breast cancer is represented from DCIS to stage four, from all sorts of walks of life from all around the world. Our writers go deep and get vulnerable to heal their own experiences and to let others like you know that you're not alone you will find yourself within these pages. Get Igniting the Fire Within, stories of healing, hope, and humor inside today's young breast cancer community on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle now. Curl up with it today. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Reed. I live in Belmont, Massachusetts, and I was diagnosed with stage one breast cancer at age 48 in 2006. And again, at age 50 in 2008. I recently attended a free wildfire pop-up writing workshop for the young breast cancer community. When I write in wildfire groups, I don't have to explain anything. I can write about the effect of cancer on my life and know that we all get it. All right, welcome back. Thank you so much for the love, Betty. Have you guys listening wondered how these testimonials get on here? Would you like to be invited to record one? Consider this your invitation. The testimonials I play here are all real. They are all people who have one way or another found their way to wildfire and experienced the change that being here has made on their own survivorship. Those of you listening, if you have a testimonial of how the Wildfire Magazine and writing community has affected you, maybe it's this podcast even, please record it on your phone and email it to me at editor at wildfirecommunity.org. All right, Anne, turning back to you, thank you again for your powerful writing and sharing today. Thank you. It's always my pleasure to write for Wildfire. I know it. I've been so um, privileged to publish a number of your pieces, this being the latest. So you know I love to ask this question, so I'm going to ask you, but what did you ultimately come to say with this piece? And I wonder if there's two answers here, like maybe some that you ultimately wanted to say to family, and maybe there's another layer of what you wanted to say to the community. <laughs> That's a great question. You always have such thought-provoking <laughs> questions. Um, you know, I think I wanted them to know that I was trying to be intentional. But I also felt like there was a balance of, like with the quilting, it it really bothered me that these won't be perfect. Um, But with my writing, I don't want it to be perfect. You know, I want it to show the the blips and the heartaches and and the struggles too. Um, So I kind of wanted to show them both sides of of that um, as I put this piece together. Mm -hmm. And then I just felt like advocacy you know, when they were younger, when when kids are smaller, and I used to say that I was, I was going to go talk to women who had breast cancer, or I was going to, you know, go help this population or, or do this or that. They'd be like, why can't you just help us? Like, and I wanted them to know, you know, they've, they've gotten older, obviously, they understand. 
But, um, you know, I wanted to remind them that it's important that we all lean in and help others, um, that that's the best way to survive this awful disease, especially. Mm-hmm. Remind me how old they were when you were first diagnosed? When I was diagnosed early stage, they were five. So they were in preschool. And um, so to see them graduate high school this year was just like, you know, the highlight of of my life. And so um, that was just a really, it wasn't a given, especially earlier this year that, that I would be there in May to see that. So, you know, I think that when you put out the call and the prompts for these particular issue, that it really struck me that how much time and energy I work on my legacy, especially for them. And maybe I can ease up a little bit in some ways um, that they will remember. They will remember. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, listening to you talk about that. I think that's a different angle to parenting than maybe someone who hasn't experienced cancer. You know, maybe they're not necessarily thinking of legacy in the same way. They're maybe thinking like, well, I hope when they go out, you know, and they're making decisions, they hear my voice in the back of their head, you know, and they make the right decision or whatever. But we're not so much thinking, will they remember me? And will they remember what what mattered to me? And you've raised them, you've raised your girls with this being a core part of your family, you know, an open part of your family is this legacy part. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I was struck by the part in your writing when you were talking about, you know, your hope for them to maybe hold off on reading certain things until a little bit later. And I was thinking how that's a trust exercise because you don't get necessarily a say in that, right? No, I certainly don't. And I think it kind of surprised them. Um, I probably didn't have as strong a conversation with them beforehand, um, before this was published. And and I guess I thought that they had heard me say that and maybe they had just kind of, you know, discounted that. So by having this piece published and then looking at it again, you know, it did open the door for a really good conversation on, you know, there are nights when you two frustrate the hell out of me. Well, three, all three of them actually. Um, and, and vice versa. And that's how I process as I write things down and you know, at the end of the day, you know, you love them all dearly, but there's going to be some things that you're going to write or say or question that might come across as really unkind or raw. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think that's just being human, right? And I think one of the beautiful Mm -hmm. things you're showing them is, like you said, like the, the messiness, the unfinishedness, the, you know, the work in progress that is, that is life, but also is legacy and building a legacy. Um, another aspect to legacy I was thinking about as you were reading was the stuff that we actively choose to pass on versus the stuff like breast cancer that we don't choose um, to be passing on and what we have say over and what we don't. And I know you grew up with a breast cancer legacy in your family. And I just wonder, h- how is that I don't, so that's different from mine. I didn't have breast cancer before my diagnosis. So this is newer for me in terms of being a legacy for my daughter. Um, but I just wonder, you know, how you've kind of come to terms with that being a part of what does get passed on to them. Oh, that's, oh, that's been a big subject this year. Um, 
my sister was diagnosed this year and I watched one of my daughters process it. And she's like 100% of my aunt, 100% of my grandmothers, 100% of my great grandmothers, my own mother have all had breast cancer. You know, when will it hit? Like, what what's it going to do to me? And And that was just such an awful realization, you know, at 18. And that's something that I didn't have um, for sure. So I think with the girls, I try really hard to talk about education and monitoring and, you know, they're going to have to be so much more vigilant than I ever was. Um, And I hate that it, you know, I feel like, you know, cancer takes many different things from people, but you know, in some ways it takes a little bit of their youth, a little bit of their naive. I can never say that word, naivety. <laughs> they can't be naive about it. <laughs> and, um, and and I think that they're they're growing up with that and they're handling that. But it's, you know, I think we've also probably in our family normalized the cancer conversation, that it's not unusual to have a conversation about my treatment or somebody else's treatment and um, and what they're going through. Mm-hmm. I can really relate to that because, you know, my daughter is not, um, she's at the beginning of her high school uh, career right now, Mm -hmm. but she was quite young when I was diagnosed. So she has grown up in kind of a culture of breast cancer as well, mostly because I've chosen to, you know, work here and stay here. Um, So she hears the stories and it was an interesting shift for her, I think, when she started to realize that, that she might have her own story, hopefully not necessarily be diagnosed. You know, we really hope not, but a story of vigilance, a story of, you know, having a different answer when you go to the doctor and they ask for family history than I had. And, um, and learning, you know, what that might mean personally. And I had shielded her from that for a long time, that it could have anything to do with her in that way. And it's been interesting. I say interesting with quotes around it, right? Like no one wants to have these conversations, but it's interesting to slowly start to bring her into the conversation in terms of her role in it too. So I really, I hear you when you say that you're kind of seeing, maybe it's a little bit of the scales falling from their eyes, you know, as they see what this might mean for, for them too. I remember when my grandmother was diagnosed and I remember also noticing that she had other family. This was my paternal grandmother, but she had other family with breast cancer. And I distinctly remember looking in the mirror one day at my own chest and thinking, don't get too attached. Like these might not be here. And that's, I I look back on that as a heartbreaking moment, but also an interesting moment of clarity. Did you have a moment like that yourself? I didn't really. Um, I was diagnosed before my mother. Okay. you know, my grandmothers had had it, my aunts had had it, but I would, they were they were always older, in, in quotes, you know, and in reality, they probably weren't much older than I am now. But, um, but I had it, and then my mother had it, and then I was diagnosed metastatic. So I guess I, I felt like, well, my mom doesn't have it, so I'm going to be fine. Um, but yeah, that, that first diagnosis was still a, a shock out of absolutely nowhere. And like so many young women, you know, I'd gone through so many needle biopsies and mammograms and ultrasounds, and they kept saying, oh, it's probably not that. You don't have a family history. You're way too young. 
all the lines they feed you until they suddenly are sitting right next to you after, you know, a surgery and say, oh, actually, we were wrong. <laughs> you have yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Pretty terrifying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I want to bring this back around to writing, as I always like to do. Um, so I'm curious, again, um, you know, just talking to you kind of mother to mother, teenage daughters to teenage daughters. And I'm curious if part of your legacy has been to instill an interest in writing in your girls or if they they feel like that's your thing and they're, it's not really their thing. And I ask because I really want my daughter to find how much processing and and mental health, you know, benefits exist in writing all the stuff I say here, you know, every day. Um, and I think because it's so important to me, she's a creative writer and likes to write uh, short stories and different things, you know, that are that are more um, fiction based. But when it comes to writing hard things and journaling about hard things, she's very resistant. So I'm curious how that is in your family. <laughs> I think it's kind of mixed. It depends on the day. So, um, you know, you know how it is with parenting. As soon as you say something that you think is true, they'll turn around and prove that it's false. <laughs> yep. So um, last year, about this time last year, we were going through some really tough times with my um, diagnosis and everything and progression. And so I bought both the girls and my husband journals. And I said, you know, I know that this, no matter what happens, this next year is going to be really hard. And, um, and I said, and, you know, writing is so important to me. And I think that each of you, while you have each other, there's something about putting pen to paper. And it's funny, two out of three of them have used it. (laughs) So, um, so I felt pretty good about those odds. Um, one of the one of my daughters write. She doesn't necessarily journal, but she's a really strong writer. They're both strong in different ways. One is um, very strong grammatically, and one is very strong creatively. Mm-hmm. So one's really great at more of the science based papers, and you know, she <laughs> she wrote a paper on why her curfew should be longer or later in the night. It was like a four page paper with like resources and sites and references and everything um, versus the other ones more of a, I'm going to tell you how I feel mm-hmm. um, in this. So, you know, I see that they're each coming to it from different angles, mm-hmm. but it is so powerful. I wish that I would have journaled earlier in my life. Um, I think that there would have been more maybe more clarity and maybe some different decisions made if I would have, you know, written, taken the time to write it down and think it through that Mm, way. I love that. And it's interesting because I have been a lifelong journaler myself. um, But I think for a long time, it was more of just event session. And now my journaling is more along the lines of what I'm wondering, you know, what are the big questions of, of the day or, or of the season? And for me, that's where I found the most, the most powerful clarity in using writing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. What kinds of writing are you doing these days? Well, that's a great question. I'm just finished up um, a class on flash fiction, and um, I really enjoyed that. So I have a few pieces that I'm hoping to get published and submit. So I'm polishing. I think I'm probably more in that editing phase. 
but at the same time, um, I happened to be here in San Antonio at the Breast Cancer Symposium. And yesterday it was really hard for me to get the energy and the courage to leave my hotel room. So I sat and wrote, you know, a thousand words on how, how foggy it was outside mm. and how I felt the exact same as I started trying to, you know, make my way toward this convention center and the unknown and heavy topics and all of that. Um, so I think there's definitely still a, a part that's when I'm beaten down or looking for clarity, you know, it's still that journal that pull out with a piece of pen and paper, old fashioned and write about it for 15 to 20 minutes and feel always better after I finish. Yeah. So did you have the courage after you wrote to to exit your hotel room? I did. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. It's kind of like exercise, you know, I don't always want to go for a walk or it used to be a run, but now it's a walk. But after I get out there for the first half mile, I'm fine. But it's just getting your shoes on and getting out the door. It's true. Same with yes. writing. And that wonderful feeling that comes from having written, you know, on the other side of it and just feel so, I don't know, cleansed. And it's interesting to talk about because we often end up writing about these dark thoughts, these, you know, worries and whatnot, but it still feels really cathartic and good to get them out, even though, you know, to get to that other side, you have to go through, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, last question for you. You have been living with metastatic um, disease for for a while now. How many years now? Um, Six and a half. Six and a half. Do you have any words for someone else who maybe is more recently diagnosed? Anything that you've learned along the way um, that you would like to share just about about living? You know, I think when you first get that diagnosis, it feels like a death sentence. Um, It just feels so grim. And, you know, in reality, in the last six and a half years, I've had the opportunity to do some things I wouldn't have probably done otherwise. Um, I've learned a lot about advocacy and, you know, the power of women in particular using their voice to change healthcare. And I think that's, that's really phenomenal. You know, I think it's my advice would be to, to find what sparks the most joy in you and live into that, whether that's hiking or traveling or writing or quilting or, you know, whatever. It doesn't have to be something fancy. You don't have to hit every continent, but, you know, find something that's what's possible today, tomorrow, and set some some smaller attainable goals, because I think that that's what helps give us the energy and the hope to keep moving forward and power through some of these treatments. Mm-hmm. Mm, I really appreciate that. Thank you. So, Anne, where can people find you online and read more about your your advocacy, your your blogging, your quilting? Um, so I'm at. I should have. This should be an easy question. Uh, I my blog is at down dash not dash out dot com down not out dot com. And I'm on Instagram occasionally at Ann Camden NC. And I'm on Facebook at Ann Got Breath Camden. Perfect. Well, we will put all those things in our show notes so people can follow up with you. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Ann. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. 
Well, today's writer and guest was Anne Camden. Her piece was called A Three-Prong Legacy Effort from our October-November 2022 issue of Wildfire called Legacy Stories. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn is a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our now 40 issues in the Wildfire archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There is no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn to listen to it wherever you go. If you like what you hear, leave us a starred review to help others find their way to writing the stories that need to be told. All right, here is your writing prompt. I've learned the most about living from. I've learned the most about living from. This could be a person or a big event in your life, a decision you made or a mistake perhaps. I've learned the most about living from. Set your timer for eight minutes, right without stopping or editing. Do you want more writing prompts? Do you find writing prompts to be a good way to enter the page like I do? Well, there are more to be had at the free journal companion to this podcast. Head over to wildfirecommunity.org slash the burn to get yours. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.